Wow. Welcome to the West Virginia and Commonplace. Uh, today I have with me an author. His name is Kevin Bryant. Kevin Bryant is here to talk to us about his new book, Spies on the Sidelines, the High Stakes World of NFL Espionage. So the first thing like we always do on this podcast, it's real simple and we'll get straight to the point. Kevin, the number one question is, who is Kevin Bryant? All right. Hey, JR. Thanks for having me on. So, um, yeah, I am a part-time author and a full-time Department of Army civilian. Um, I, I collect and protect information for the Department of Defense, and I've got a, a, a background as a special agent. Okay. Now, let me ask you something. You have master degrees in uh, intelligence studies and sports management, correct? That is correct. And what made you pursue, pursue both of these fields? Well, you know, I've always had an interest in uh, intelligence studies dating all the way back to uh, college. Uh, you know, I got, I got sucked into a James Bond fest. Uh, I think it was probably my senior year during spring break when, you know, got nothing else to do and I'm hanging out at my girlfriend's house. Um, and I was like, man, that's, that's pretty, seems like a cool field, a cool subject, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I always kind of always wanted to study it some more. And when I finished up um, hopping out of the army, I had the GI Bill and a bunch of money and to be able to spend on college. And I was trying to figure out what to study. And um, I love sports and I always wanted to learn more about the intelligence field. So I, I combined those two together. Okay. Now, let me ask you a personal question, because that's the, what we like to do this on the podcast. Dealing with all this intelligence, like you at an early age had to learn how to keep a secret, right? Sure. And what was, you know, without telling the secret, uh, what age did you develop this, this technique in, in this uh, mindset? Because it's more than just keeping secrets. You're keeping valuable and information that could, that in the wrong hands could destroy people and countries and all this other stuff. Um, like, like, how did you handle that burden? And how did you start, like, like as you got older and when you were in the military, like what did you do exactly like to, to be able to hold on to this information and not break confidentiality? Yeah, it can be very difficult sometimes, um, you know, because you get to do, you get to do a lot of cool stuff in the military, especially, um, you know, when you're a special agent doing some interesting, interesting things here and there. And yeah, at times it's very hard to not, be able to talk about it with your friends and your family that you want to be able to share all the cool things in your life with. Um, so, but, you know, that's kind of, that's part of the job. Um, and, you know, you really, especially when, you know, I've been deployed five times now um, and you really understand the importance of, of information security um, when you're in that type of setting, when people's lives are on the line. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very important. It's something that you get, you know, routine, routinely trained on. It's something that is absolutely stressed in the military. You know, there's that very old adage, loose lips sink ships, um, yes. which is, which is still, you know, very true to this day. Okay. Now working for the department of defense, like you, like you said, um, safeguarding and, and gathering information. Um, what I want to dig deeper into is, is people don't understand like breaking confidentiality is not, I'm not just saying like if you go in and 
accidentally tell a certain specific point of something, breaking confidentiality is even the nature of what you're doing. So like, I, I know it may sound redundant, but like, how do you, like, I mean, how do you wake up some days and, you know, you, you go do your, um, you did your military life and then you went to civilian life. How did you just sometimes just sit there and stay quiet? Like, did something just click in your head at certain moments that, hey, I've got to turn this switch off? Um, certain information in certain ways that you gather, be it uh, using a computer and all such. How did you always manage, you know, in, in your military life to like split that up? Go do your civilian life when you would go you know, home for leave and things like that. And when you came back and it was the quiet time when you were alone, when it was, when you were in your barrack and it wasn't about what you were doing in the military at the time, you were just, just there by yourself alone in your alone time. How did you just sometimes just have to like, how did you shut that off? Like, how did you just sit there and kind of just go, Hey, I can't talk about this. I can't be this person today. This information just has to get out of my head. Like, I don't understand how you clear that out of your mind. Yeah. So you've got to, you've got to compartmentalize your life a bit. Um, and so you've got your, your work friends or your work colleagues, and then your regular friends and family. And so, you know, for the most part, what you have to be able to do is to, to talk about all that work stuff while you're at work um, and get that out of your system. You know, if something cool happens to you that day at work, great. Talk about it with, with, your, with your colleagues that you can. Um, because when you go home, uh, there's so many days that, you know, my wife will ask me, how's your day? And I'm just like, it was great. And she's like, what'd you do? And I'm like stuff. Cause that's, you know, there's just, I just can't talk about it. So, you know, at times it's, you know, I think it's every husband's, uh, best, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like their dream scenario and at the worst and at times it's also like, uh, it's, it's, it's a nightmare because sometimes you don't want to talk about work, right? We all have like lousy days and you're just like, oh, I just, you know, I don't want to talk about work. It, it was work and I don't want to even think about work outside of work. So, you know, and it's no different for me. So not being able to talk about it is sometimes really nice and other times it's not. But um, yeah, just just segmenting those two portions of my life. Um, it, it's, it's what I have to do. It's what works for me. Okay, now let's jump into it. You decide to write a book. What was the initial process that started you into the mode that, hey, I don't want to write a book about in the NFL and what goes on inside the NFL? Yeah, so JR was, I was, um, Spygate 2 had just taken place, which was when uh, Josh McDaniels, who is the offensive coordinator for the Patriots, moved over to the Broncos, and he brought a videographer who used to work with the Patriots during the, the time of the Spygate scandal with him. And that videographer got caught um, taping another team's practice. And, you know, the Broncos found out about it, told the NFL, whole investigation took place, et cetera, et cetera. So at that point, being a Broncos fan and knowing everything behind Spygate, I really got curious about how much spying goes on in the NFL. And so I kind of started it as my own personal mission to figure out the answer to that question. Um, you know, and I thought I had a good background with it. And so I started reading up on the subject on the internet 
finding what I could find and realized that there was no book that had ever been written about the subject of how NFL teams collect on each other to try to get a game day advantage and all the different techniques that they utilize. And so I wanted to see whether, you know, Spygate and Spygate 2, were these just anomalies or was this something that, you know, is this something that's been going on since, you know, throughout the history of the NFL and we as fans are just not aware of it? So in doing your research, uh, you, you were able to make a 267-page book, correct? Right. And if you don't mind, because we don't want to give away uh, anything to the listeners and listeners, real quick, uh, Mr. Brian, if you don't mind, could you give a shameless plug so they know where to find your book real fast? Absolutely. So the book, um, you can find it on Amazon, of course. It's selling with Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Um, you can go on my website which is spiesonthesidelines.com. And that's got everything about me, about the book, about where it's selling. Um, and it has all my social media handles as well there. And the book is out on, it's got, I got, I've got a hardback version, a electronic version and um, an audiobook version. The audiobook is not yet um, being sold on Amazon but it will be out in just a few weeks. Okay. Now, let us know a little excerpt of something that you found out that was really intriguing to you that you didn't know anything about before you started doing this investigation. Yeah. So when I started out, I would say for the most part, I just thought that, you know, um, there would probably be a few isolated incidents throughout the history of the NFL, and that was it. And what I found was that Collecting on your opponents is a everyday event in the NFL. This is something that is going on every single day and is something that every single team in the NFL is very actively doing. Now, there, um, it dates back all the way to the beginning of the NFL and even before, all the way to college football, because college football was around um, since 1880, well before the NFL. And, and the collection techniques that teams are using, like spying on practices, like debriefing players, these have been going on all the way since the 1800s. And it is, it, and these things are, you know, it's nothing new. It's absolutely nothing new. And um, I think it's a really interesting subject that no one's ever tapped into before. Now, going all, all the way back that far to college football, um, you know, when people think of it now, people think that people that, uh, you know, scouts just send drones over top of uh, certain stadiums that are open or, you know, have so, someone, you know, actually infiltrate by being part of like, the, like a towel boy or, or something like that. So you're telling me it's deeper than that. Um, did you find out like – like in the NFL, are there certain teams that do more than the others because they have more cash flow? Or is it one of those deals where it just depends on the conference and it depends on who the opponent is? Yeah, it does. It, dep it depends on a lot of things. So it depends on um, money, like you mentioned. It depends on the, the coach. 
and how willing he is uh, to engage in certain techniques and tactics, especially ones that are, you know, considered to be illicit or shady or unethical. Um, and it all, it all varies. Uh, um, and so there are absolutely teams that have done it more than others in the history of the league, starting with uh, George Hallis and the Bears, who was considered, you know, one of the founders of the NFL, um, going with Sid Gilman and the Chargers, um, obviously today we've got, you know, Bill Belichick, um, Paul Brown, who started the Cleveland Browns, um, who was their first, first coach out there. Um, yeah, there's a long line of coaches to include Al Davis with the Raiders who have been willing to go, um, further into more extremes than other coaches. The one thing I did notice, um, JR, that you might find interesting during the course of my research was that. A lot of the teams that are winning championships and Super Bowls are the teams that are willing to go to every extreme to do whatever it takes and employ these very, very shady, often um, non-permissible techniques in order to go after and do what needs to be done to get the information on opponents to be able to give them that advantage to win these big games. And that, that's, that can be seen all throughout my book. Okay. And one question, this, this will get to me. The NFL is a governing body of the football league um, has subcommittees and has subsidiaries inside there that should have a certain code of ethics to handle this or certain rules. Um, why are these rules not heavily uh, present? It seems like. Yeah, so they do. Um, so it gets into a few things. Um, first of all, I would say that teams and coaches are very reluctant to tattletale in the first place uh, because lots of teams are involved in some shady shenanigans. And so let's say a team gets caught um, or is at least heavily suspected of spying on another team's practice. Well, you know, a lot of times they're just going to go, yeah, well, you know, it happens and lots of teams are doing it. And as a matter of fact, the team that catches the other team may be involved in this as well. So they just go, you know what, we're just, we're going to let it go. We'll, you know, tell this guy, hey, you know, get out of here. Don't do this again, et cetera, et cetera. And, and leave it at that. Or they may not have the evidence. They may catch someone spying on a practice but they may not be able to confirm that that person is associated with the team, no matter how much they suspect it, unless you can confirm it, the NFL can't do anything about it. Right. Right. And then furthermore, these teams take a lot of precautions not to be caught. So, you know, if they're going to spy on a practice, they're probably not going to do this from 10 feet away they'll probably rent out a hotel room and use high-powered binoculars or a high-powered video camera to be able to watch what's going on while from a very concealed location that would be very, very difficult to detect. You know, and you mentioned drones earlier. I spoke to a drone expert over the course of my research who said, 
He said, Kevin, if you know what you're doing, no one is ever going to catch you because they're extremely difficult to detect. And it's just, it's just not going to happen um, unless you are an idiot flying around this thing uh, with this thing. So, you know, it's hard to catch these people um, that, are, that are spying. Um, so that's, that's another reason you, that we don't hear a lot about it. Okay, and I wonder though also, um, and maybe you can answer this for me, does it even go as deep as conferences? Like, because, you know, conferences, uh, we'll just talk NFL because that's smaller than college football. You get NFC, AFC, and then you have the divisions. Uh, do divisions even work together as a conglomerate doing this kind of stuff? <laughs> you know, that's a really interesting question. And, and to be um, honest, I don't, I don't believe they do. Um, I would honestly argue it would be better off if you're going to, let's say, team up, pair up with another team to collect information, right? So mm -hmm. you're going to work as an alliance and kind of share information that you gather. Um, so I would, I would say that the way to do that is not with your fellow members of your division because you play them twice a year. And those are the teams you want to have the most information about. So you would rather pair up with somebody else who's going to play teams in your division and you know is likely to collect information on them so that you can use that information twice a year um, when you play um, all of your divisional foes, which could be extremely advantageous. And coaches have in the past shared information with other coaches. That is something that absolutely takes place. Um, a lot of times it's not really a formal arrangement. It is simply an informal arrangement where they'll say, um, you know, they'll, they'll just sit down and talk. And it's not necessarily a, hey, I'll give you this if you give me that. It's just two coaches that are friends that feel free to share information as long as that information is not about their respective teams. Okay. So like, for instance, you wouldn't see Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh working together. Not very likely, in my opinion. I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, especially if you have, um, you know, two coaches on both those teams that are, are, are friends. Um, but what you're not going to see is them sharing information about their own team. Um, right. Un unless... Um, one of those coaches has been compromised, which has happened in the history of the NFL, where you have members of one staff actually working for another organization. And that's in, that's in my book, Spies on the Sidelines. I've got a whole chapter on that subject in and of itself, where, you know, just like with, with nation states, with countries, we're always worried about having a spy um, inside of our military, or, or our government working for a adversary. The same is a fear of NFL teams because this has happened in the past. Okay, so in a roundabout way, this is, it almost feels like, uh, like from what you're seeing, it's like a James Bond Mission Impossible type of environment that goes on inside the NFL. Um, so here's my question. Um, I know that you've taken taken care and, and got a great amount of knowledge on the NFL level and dug into the college, but 
is any of this stuff taught on a high school level or done on a high school level and then raises up through the ranks? Yes, so it, it absolutely does. Um, there are, I, I, you know, I've ran across quite a few articles during the course of my research, writing spies on the sidelines at the NFL level. My second book is on the, on the collegiate level. So I'm, I'm heavily in the research and writing phase of that. But when I've been doing the research for both of these books, I have come across articles that absolutely pertain to the high school level of, of teams, you know, um, going to some, you know, ridiculous extremes, trying to get that advantage to win games. Um, especially when you're talking um, against division rivals or you're talking big games, you know, teams that are playing um, for city or state level championships that are, you know, willing to go a little bit further than, than they normally would in order to try to get to that you know, that championship level. Because I noticed, um, I forgot what it was, but uh, I graduated high school in 2004. Something went on in the state of Texas. And, and I remember I thought that it was weird, you know, like how, because, you know, football there is almost like collegiate NFL football, you know, big states that have football like that. Right. And, and um, after reading up on uh, this, I went back, I forgot the article, but uh, I know it was Prairieville View, Texas. Something happened there, and either way, uh, it was signal calling that was figured out, and it cost the team a state championship. But anyway, so when you look at certain type of uh, information, like when I'm I'm from the state of Virginia originally, like so we had like powerhouse AAA, AA, single A football, and you had some teams that were unprecedentedly winning numerous championships so like you said in the nfl when you see these teams that are winning and uh there's one team that always comes to mind everybody's going to talk about the patriots but it, you look at the success of the patriots the cowboys and different teams that won multiple championships consecutively like that um do you did you tie anything in obviously the patriots you did but like even going back to like the cowboys and even when the 49ers were very great uh in the late 80s were you, were you able to tie in stuff with these teams to, to kind of show that, that like, it's a strong thing? It's a strong, um, what am I trying to get, correlation that if you win a lot of championships, that you're, that there's something that you're doing faulty somewhere? Or have you, or has it just been like in the 2000s, this has become more prevalent in, in that sense? I know you talked about what happened in, in the early days of college, but like now, you know, like with the, the Patriots, they had the deflate, uh, incident spy mm -hmm. gate, and all this other stuff going is it more prevalent now than it was back then like i mean i understand that it was unheard of but i'm talking about like is it like when you look at football now and you compare it to football 30 years ago um in your research it was it one of those issues where it just wasn't caught or just like you said it, it seems like there was a secret society about some of the stuff but do you think i mean or you know um it's more prevalent now than it was then correct so I would say that this that 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 spying on your opponents, collecting information on them, whatever you want to call it, this has been around since the the beginning of the NFL, the very beginning. It's it's been here the whole time. Now the the collection techniques have changed over time, based on rule changes, and based on changes in technology, um, such as today we got to worry about like drones. So you know the worry back in the day used to be 
having an airplane or a helicopter fly over a practice. And coaches would actually stop practices at times, use, a binoc use binoculars and look up to try to see the registration numbers of airplanes so that they could write it down and call the FAA to say, hey, who does this airplane belong to? Because I'm worried they're spying on me. Right? Today's the threat. Today the threat is drones. Um, you used to be worried about having your playbooks stolen from you, which is still a concern, you know, physically stolen. Well, today the threat is, can you have those playbooks, which are on tablets a lot of times, electronically stolen? You know, data theft. Yes. Oh, wow. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of new techniques now that teams have to be concerned about and to take measures to safeguard, which is another thing in the book that I go through. So for every chapter, for all the collection techniques that I have, I also talk about what are the countermeasures that teams employ to de defend all to defend against those, which I think is just as fascinating a subject. Um, and, and you can really see just how paranoid teams are and how concerned they are about protecting their information by some of the extreme measures that they use to try to defend against these. You know, I can get that because like you said, like in this day and age, everybody has a video camera on their phone. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, one point for you, JR, that you brought up, um, I think one of the reasons that it appears that this is more prevalent today than it was in the past maybe is because of the media. You know, 40 or 50 years ago, we didn't have the level of scrutiny with players, coaches, teams. The NFL wasn't as big as it, as it is now. And so there's a lot more press that comes with that. And I think that's probably the reason, um, you know, why it seems more prevalent today than in the past. Okay. Because uh, like you said, I'll, I'll say you more and more about it because I know like uh... – I would wonder, like, what what kind of security is used in um, these preseason uh, deals? Because you know, like, uh, in the state of West Virginia, uh, the New Orleans Saints for a period of time and the Houston Texans would come to White Sulphur Springs, and you know they would uh, do their practices, you know, for their training camps. So inside training camps, what kind of security do you have to do they employ there? If you don't mind me asking, because that would seem like that would be the most riskiest place. Yeah, so that's something I talk about in my book, and I've got a few examples in there of teams absolutely sp spying on other teams um, during training camp. Um, as a matter of fact, um, yeah, you know, because training camp, your week one opponent, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot can change on a team during the offseason. So your week one opponent that – Usually, like teams usually want to watch film or do advanced scouting to figure to figure out what they're about to what you know their opponent they're about to face and to figure out their tendencies and what to expect. Well, when you get a bunch of new players or maybe a new coach or a new system, all of that can change in an offseason. So that first opponent has a lot of incentive to try to spy on training camp to be able to figure out a lot of this, a lot of the unknowns. So a lot of that goes on. Now, teams are not allowed to have any of their team officials, 
coaches, representatives inside of a training camp per NFL laws. Unless the training camp, unless a team charges money for training camps, which is one of the main reasons, oddly enough, that you see that no team will actually charge fans to come in and to watch training camps. Having said that, um, you know, my book is, 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 you know, it has quite a few examples of teams going in and spying during those training camps um, because of the benefits that they can gain um, from doing so. I'm trying to develop a better question uh, <laughs> because like you're, you're real adept there. All right, so training camp covered. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, let's dig deep into the next big selling point inside the NFL. Um, Madden, the, the football game, the video game. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, those plays are authentic plays, and that kind of stuff is out there in the open. But um, is there any detail in the, the transfer of playbook information from the NFL to Electronic Arts, which is the company that makes them, is, is there any type of security issue there that they have to worry about? Because I know that not all those plays are plays that they run, but um, since at least, I would say, 1998, they've tried to keep authentic plays for each team. How's their security in that? Yeah, that's interesting. And to be, to be honest, that is not a subject that I have researched or gone into. Um, my guess is what they do is probably use the, you know, the team's last season, um, okay. looking at their plays during the last season when they are updating the game, um, but that they wouldn't have any information that is not on film. Um, I, 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 I say that with a, with a fair degree of certainty. I don't, I don't believe they would try to get involved in the spying, spying portion of that to try to figure out, you know, what's, what's some stuff that they have in their playbook that, that we haven't seen on film yet. I don't think that's realistic. Okay. And, and I, I, I agree with that because I was just wondering about that because that was something that spun in my head because they had the video games and, um, you know, like like you said, there's so many ways that that, like you said, with, with a transmission and they're using all that Microsoft stuff because uh, what they use, Surface Books or something, whatever the Microsoft yeah. thing is to, to do all that. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's a good point, JR, because, you know, it's not just other teams that you know that these these opponents have to worry about it's a lot of things it's the media because let's face it if you know the media is busy interviewing players coaches um they're often recording film during practices and so they have to be very concerned about that information that is getting out there likewise fans um, you know, fans can be going by snapping pictures or recording video, and that becomes an absolute concern of what's out there, much less having fans of other teams, you know, try to help out and put out video on the internet, whether or not they, they are working directly for the team. Maybe they say, hey, you know what? I bet if I stick this film on the internet, that the team I'm a fan of, they'll find it and maybe it'll help them out. So 
you know, it may not be EA sports necessarily that teams have to worry about, but it's not just opponents. Teams have to be very secretive with, you know, the American population or the worldwide really population in general, because this is a, you know, information travels at the speed of light nowadays. And it's, it's, it's very easy for teams to get compromised. And so they have to do everything in their power to try to protect that information. And yeah, and you tied it up right there. That's what I was talking about earlier about the confidentiality. Sometimes, you know, even in the instance, if someone didn't do that in malice, just they just did it because, you know, they were taking a picture with a, their favorite player or something and something was shot at an angle, that type of confidentiality, it, it must be very bothersome for NFL teams to protect all that. And I'm glad that you hit that point because that's what I was, you know, trying to, trying to get at with you earlier that, you know, in your line of work, it's amazing that you don't compromise something by accident. You know, right, right. And so, yeah, it's, um, you know, it leads to some really funny allegations and coach stories of Pete coaches being absolutely paranoid. And there's a lot of these in the book. And I think it's, it's one of the things that makes spies on the sidelines so great because it really captures, um, the paranoia and oftentimes the paranoia is, is deserved because coaches will go to these extents. So take, for example, um, you know, if employees elect, there's, there are stories of employees in bucket trucks um, being watched by staff members because the other team thinks that they're potentially a spy using these bucket trucks to get a, a view from up high. Um, there have been members of the clergy that have been told to hurry along as they go past a practice site because they're viewed as potential spies. Um, there's even a really funny story in the book about, um, you know, allegations of a little person being pushed in a stroller by a woman while the little person used a video camera to record a practice of a team. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just wild, but this, you know, it just goes to show one, the extent that teams will go to to collect this information because while George Allen, who was the Rams and Redskins coach was, you know, he was worried about teams climbing up a, uh, a telephone pole to spy on his team. And he would send his head of security to go check on those people, um, you know, that were, that were doing that. He was also rumored to have sent one of his scouts to go to a telephone pole climbing school. So, you know, some of these coaches, they're paranoid for a reason because they know the extents and techniques that they use to spy on other teams. So it's, it gets, it gets really (laughs) bizarre and crazy. And I think it just makes for a, a really fascinating and fun read. And like you said, it's, it's almost like a James Bond movie. You know, that you're like, man, this, this, this can't be about the NFL, right? This is, this is some crazy stuff, but it is, it has gone on the whole history of the league and it's, it's really cool. And there's some just incredible stories in there. Okay. Mr. Brian, I want to thank you for coming on West Virginia and Commonplace. And the book is titled Spies on the Sidelines, the High Stakes World of NFL Espionage. And with that, um, once again, I will get Mr. Bryant to plug where you can find the book. 
Yeah, so you can find it on Amazon or you can go to my website, spiesonthesidelines.com, and you can find all your purchase options there. And like always with this amazing podcast, we will have all kinds of information in the show notes, a link to get over to this book and to find out more information about Kevin Bryant and any upcoming stuff that he has going on later on down the road. You'll be able to find it on his website. Um, once again, I am JR from West Virginia and Commonplace, and we are signing off. <laughs>